This, this, this is Biz Owners Ed, where you'll learn how to start, grow, and scale your business with teachings from some of the most successful and high-volume entrepreneurs. Connect with us today at bizownersed.com. Now, let's make it happen. about the driving force for entrepreneurship. So turning to Lynn and to Marsha, asking the question, certainly there's this internal driving force to be an entrepreneur, but there's also, as, as all of us who've been entrepreneurs and experienced, this vulnerability as you step off into the abyss, right? And so there's kind of a, okay, is this going to work? So Lynn, starting with you, can you talk about what was your first, okay, I can do this moment. So it's funny you brought up the, the word vulnerable because my, my beginning was very vulnerable. I was hired by a company to learn the business actually, which, and what I was gonna say a minute ago is the commercial real estate industry is, I would say probably when I started 25, 26 years ago, it was probably 95, 96% male. Okay, so very dominant, you know, factor there. So I had to not only bust into the business with being a woman, but I also had this challenge. So here's what happened. So I was hired by this company and they offered me, back then it was unheard of, a salary, which was great. They gave me a desk, a phone, and a chair, which was very typical back then. And the man who hired me, which was obviously you know, kind of an angel in my life, said, oh, by the way, there's a lady that's gonna mentor you. So whenever you have questions, don't, don't hesitate to ask her. Well, that was great, except for she was a broker and she was trying to make you know, her business work. And no one ever told her that she was going to be my mentor. Okay? So, about three months in, she called me into her office. And she closed the door. Never a good sign. And she said, okay, I'm just going to tell you, you need to find something different to do. Like, you're never going to make it. You're not smart enough. You just don't have what it takes. So, like, what else can you do? Like, find something. Because you, it's just never going to happen here. She went on for like 20 minutes, okay? So at the end of her little rant, which of course I was in front of her desk and she was behind it and that was a power thing too. So looking back, so she said, well, so do you have anything to say? And I said, I do. And she goes, really? Okay, what is it? And I said, thank you. And she said, thank you. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you said thank you. Why would you say thank you? And I said, because anytime anybody has ever told me I can't do something, I always do it. Thank you. So I got up and I left, and I never asked her for help again. But that was my entry into the world, knowing that I could do it, because someone told me that I couldn't. <laughs> Marsha, same question for you. The first, okay, I can do this moment. Having come out of, you know, very high-profile corporate jobs. Now you're going to come out on your own and do something 
probably better than what was happening at the time, and launch out. What, when did you know, okay, this is going to work, I can do this? Well, in consulting, it's frequently a challenge that oftentimes it's the case that every January you start all over. And in terms of whatever work you did last year, that's completed, and you've got to go out and sell business to new clients and constantly in modes of business development. And so I think when it really hit me that I would want to do something here was when the referrals that I was starting to get started to multiply. And so, you know, meaning that we would get referred from one client to another, from one business professional to clients that they have, and they say, we trust you, we thought of the work that you did with XYZ, you're honest, you don't overcharge, the business confidence has all the technology that the large consulting firms have. And so we wanted you to do the work with our client because we trust you. And then we started to have clients who would leave their company and we would think, this is terrible, our client just left. But then they would hire us with a new company. And so we would then have two clients. And so this really started to really multiply pretty much geometrically. And then the other thing that occurred is that instead of the typical consulting model where they're in there and you're doing projects and you move on, our clients would say, we would just really like for you to do this type of work for us on an ongoing basis. It's less expensive than going and hiring someone who does what you do. And so we started to have clients where we have regular work with them. We don't necessarily know what it's going to be, but we pretty much know that we're going to be doing work with a certain set of clients. And taking care of those clients has become a real driving, motivating factor around how we do all of our business and you know what I found after a couple of years or really kind of mostly three years into it was that the 80-20 rule really works. That if you really take care of those clients that 80% of your business in any given year is going to continue to come from those clients. And then if you develop others, mostly through referral, then you really don't have to worry about every January I have to start all over again. And that thought has never crossed my mind again. It's January, and we are 100% losing. And so, you know, that's when I realized this is not one of those feast and famine kind of businesses can really be done differently. And it's through the use of referrals and through the use of really taking care of clients where they always want to work with you. So this is not a group that walks around with much doubt. You heard from Lynn, someone says, you can't, and she says, watch me. So asking the question now, kind of on the end, Gail, I'll start with you. Managing adversity, what is the one mistake along the, the illustrious path you've had that you wish you could have avoided? Well, you know, I don't think it, it was a mistake that I would have avoided because because of mistake I was actually able to learn from it. And so I don't think you're able to grow and make better decisions until you make some of those mistakes. But I would say if I could avoid something early on in one of my businesses when I was running the construction company, we were robbing Peter to pay Paul just to pay the bills and find projects and, and keep the backlog and the pipeline filled. And so I hired a turnaround consultant 
to help us figure out a way to turn the business around and literally get out of the red. And so he came in and he spent about a couple of weeks with not only me, my executive team, and some of the key people in my organization, my project managers, a couple of my supervisors. And, and after a couple of weeks, he said, you know, I've, I've got it all solved for you. And I said, you know, I'm excited, right? Because he's gonna help us get the business turned back around and figure out the types of projects we need to chase and that if we really have the right people on the bus and the right seats. And so I can't wait to get his news. I brought him in, and the first thing he said out of his mouth was, I think that you should just file for bankruptcy and start over. And I was pissed. <laughs> because he spent so much time within my organization, and I'm thinking, that's all you've got to tell me? And so I very politely, quickly escorted him out of my office and said, thank you very much, but I no longer need your services. Long story short, very shortly thereafter, I went to another venture capital fund, and, and I think that's one of the questions later, we'll get into that. And I got funding from them to be able to fund the projects that I needed and grow my business from there and then I never turn back. the adversity theme, most challenging moments, and, and how did you handle it? Well, in 27 years, I've had a lot of challenging moments, downturns in the economy, some of your top people leave, people that you thought you could never live without, and um, so I, I would have to say, and I'll be very candid here, that I pride myself on integrity. I run a business that that is absolutely the most important thing to me and to everyone who works for me. I felt this sense like maybe I could do this and it would be okay. Like maybe I will also admit that I was in the middle of a contentious divorce and the thought crossed my mind that if I could just hand him a pile of money, he would go away and leave me alone. <laughs> So that's really a terrible admission, but that was also in my mind, too. <laughs> Sorry. I hope none of his friends are here. <laughs> so, you know, I, I actually hired this investment banker, and he had run a, a competitive process. So he had a number of buyers in the mix, and so we did that. We ran a competitive process for six months. We had all the major dental buyers in our process. And at the end, 3M won the, won the business. It was really fun. I, I mean, the, the due diligence process going, I mean, when you have a small company and you're going through due diligence with behemoths that have like armies of lawyers and accountants, I will say that summer, if you read my book, you know, I described one day waking up thinking I was actually having a heart attack. My dad died at 48 of a heart attack. So I took it very seriously. Like I couldn't breathe. I'm driving down 75 and I'm like, okay, I'm going to Presbyterian right now. I'm just going to pull in and find out, am I having a heart attack? I was not, I was actually having a panic attack. But, you know, in the end, it was a, a huge learning experience for me too, right? Understanding how these companies do business, what criteria are they looking for, what they're developing internally. And what I realized was, at least in our space, there would always be room for innovative companies like ours because most of those big companies buy innovation. They just don't have the internal, you know, intestinal fortitude, so to speak, to take those risks and lose big sums of money 
So they'd rather watch a venture capital group put money into something, see that it can grow, that it can get traction, and then obviously they end up paying more later, but to them that's better than assuming the risk. Yeah, that's, that's why I sold my company. One of the microphones for Q&A. So we'll have to share. I don't know what kind of chaos is coming, but. Well, that's been an amazing panel, first of all. Yeah, my question is for you. And also for anyone who wants to answer it, but you know, thinking of when you sold your business to 3M, what are the, the things that you started doing from the be very beginning that helped the sell at the highest value what are the things you're glad you started doing from day one or, you know, day 100? I don't know. Sure. So one of the things that I always did, I made a point of knowing everybody in my industry. So even though I was the smallest guy on the block at the trade shows, I would go and introduce myself and talk to the CEOs of all the companies. So when the investment banker said, you know, who are your contacts in the industry? I already spreadsheet. I can tell him who I talked to, what their role was in the business, when the last communication that we had was, they were aware of who we were and what we were doing. You know, and at the time that 3M bought us, after you, you know, they, they buy your company, you get to go have lunch with the CEO in their big executive dining room and all the people are there. And, and I said something like, oh, you probably didn't know this. And, and the VP of development for all of 3M, like big 3M, not just healthcare, said, oh yeah, we've been aware of you since 2003. So they've been watching the company. You know, and part of that's because we've made ourselves present. Um, the other thing is we always acted like a company that would be bought. So we had the right intellectual property assignment agreements in place. We had confidentiality agreements in place. All of our, so I, let me admit this, I have a German co-founder, okay? And no one is better at documentation than German engineers. <laughs> Okay, so I mean, every document, if you, if you ask Rutger, hey, do you have that agreement that somebody signed in 2001? He would know where to get it in within five minutes. So we had really good documentation. We had good patent protection. That was the other thing that's important in our space, you know, because patents have a lot of value. So we hired, you know, a bigger, too expensive law firm to do our work. But when we went through due diligence, it all checked out. You know, you need to make sure that you check all the regulatory boxes in our industry. You know, because again, so we tried to act like a big company even though we really weren't. Because we knew at some point, and, and that also counts as an accounting perspective, from an accounting perspective. So you want to be able to show when their accountants come in that you're compliant, because mostly you're going to be bought by, in our industry, a public, publicly traded company. So you need to align with that. If I can throw uh, a question out. Maybe throw it out to Gail and, and to Tony. One of the things is like when you start a business, you've got a plan, right? And here's how exactly what this, you know is going to happen. And then as you kind of get into the mire of business and just doing things day to day, and things start to go different directions and so forth, you kind of sometimes change the plan. And I guess my question is when both of you kind of got started, what did the plan look like? What does the plan look like now? as you're kind of continuing to launch? And what were all the things that changed that, that kind of helped to reset your you know, lexicon? Very good question. Um, so I believe that there's a very important business model. I 
did a white paper and then wrote a bunch of stuff about all I ever really needed to know I learned at IBM. So I was one of the lucky tech gals in a male-dominated company that taught things like process and Six Sigma and affirmative action, etc. And so what I learned from that is values, vision, mission, goals, strategies. And what I have learned at, in five different companies that I've named, branded, and run is that the values are the beginning. And creating a culture of value, that's the one thing that doesn't change. And I think if you stick to that value system of what you're really about, then the rest sort of falls into place. Then a vision should, you know, a man's grasp should exceed his reach. So you want your vision to be broad enough to do anything you want and say you're fulfilling your vision. I mean, that's kind of a trick, but it is, right? Broad enough because you haven't figured it out yet. And then I think mission, goals, and strategies change every quarter and every day and every month. And with each m and I always say people love m and because they really like the A part, but they don't like the M part. So that changes too. But I think if you're truly true to values and vision, and that vision is broad enough to take you anywhere that you really need to be, then I think the rest becomes a process of the only constant is change. Very good. So mine is a little, I would say, maybe more chaotic, not as a, I didn't have a huge process or big plan when I started my first company. So literally the company started on a napkin at dinner with some friends. Uh, we were, um, I left corporate America, was trying to figure out um, what I wanted to do. I was actually, believe it or not, was going to buy into some Smoothie King franchises. One of my mentors that owned a modular building facility said, why would you want to make your money one smoothie at a time and you could make it one project at a time? And so we kind of mapped out that evening on a napkin ways to go into the modular building business. But really at that time, it was not as, we were not the builder. We were just a sales and marketing organization and we, got, um, we were working with another company that was out of McKinney that uh, was 8A certified, it was an SBA program, 8A uh, nine-year incubator program, and they were looking for someone to help them put together their bids and their projects. And I said, I can do that. And so we didn't have any risk in the beginning. We were actually helping the 8A company the modular manufacturer was building all of their products and we were just sat in the middle. It was a perfect marriage. Then they got, they graduated early out of the 8A program. And I thought, you know what, what they're doing, I can do that. And so I got certified by the SBA as an 8A program to actually go out and start bidding projects on our own, not realizing that I needed project managers, I mean, superintendents and supervisors. And so everything that I learned in the construction industry and through the 17 years was literally on-the-job training. And so our vision quickly changed because we were getting some really great success within that industry. We actually, my, my first goal, so vision, was once I started taking on more risk, is to do $5 million dollars. Then it was $10 million. And then I had that, you know, that BHAG, that big, hairy, audacious goal, I'm going to be a $100 million organization one day. 
And so when you think about how you're going to reach those different goals, you have to think about how you're going to change some of your processes, the projects we were going out, the type of people that we were hiring. And so that just kind of evolved over time and our goals changed over time until we actually did eventually reach that goal of $100 million. But it wasn't because I actually said, I'm going to go and start a construction company. This is how we're going to get there. It kind of evolved and it grew over time. And if you had asked me in the early 90s if I would have been one of the largest women-owned modular construction companies in the U.S., I'd say, get out of here. You know, but here I am. So this is all open to the gallery, too. So questions, and uh, I'm going to, yeah, here we go. Just thinking about the, uh, the base DNA of entrepreneurs, we have lots of ideas. I'm curious to know what the panel would say about how do you vet all these ideas that are floating in your head? How do you latch on to one? And how do you stay the course to make sure that it's, you're seeing it through? Obviously, towards the end, you can lose interest, but just for those that are considering the different ideas that are floating in their heads, how do you vet one that's going to be, that's going to be a winner? I was thinking earlier, and I really want to say this, is I think one thing that's very imperative, especially when you're starting out and you have a business plan in mind, to know what you know and know what you don't know. Okay, so what you don't know, you hire people to do it, and when you what you do know is you just go 110%. I think that is super important. I don't know that any of us up here could say we knew for sure, because I know I didn't. I, I dove in pretty faithful. You know, you do all the right things. You, I always, my business has a constitution, and that constitution you know, there are certain standards of integrity that I have set out for myself, and I never veer away from that. If I do, it's not my company. It's a different company. So I've been very focused on keeping it the way I had envisioned it from the beginning with what I consider, you know, my standards of integrity. So that is a for sure. The idea of will it be successful I would love to just sit up here and go, we all knew exactly what we were doing, and it just turned out perfectly. But it doesn't. And I think that's one thing, too, that over this panel discussion I wanted to say is, you know, being an entrepreneur is not all rainbows and butterflies. You've heard us talk about our knocks and the things that we've had to go through. When they do, when it doesn't work out like you planned, you just basically dust yourself off and either start over with a new vision about exactly how it's going to unfold or you, you know, you change your mind and do something different. But for me, that constitution of knowing what I won't budge on is probably way more important than worrying about the success of my business. Adrian, did you want to get in on that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right, John, that we have a million ideas constantly going on. And one thing I've learned is to not take any of those choices too seriously because you're going to have a million more right after that. 
So just pick something that feels right, call it your inner voice, call it whatever you want to call it, like something that draws you and says this feels right, and then something's going to happen where it either does or doesn't feel right. And that's the critical moment is instead of judging yourself or questioning, oh, I made this mistake, just saying, you know what, I'm making a left turn, I'm making a right turn, I'm doing something else. And to your point, sometimes it no longer inspires you. What I learned about Insight was starting the company inspired me because it was a new industry that was just emerging and there were so many new innovative things to create and kind of be the first at, and we were the first at many, many things. When it became a commodity, eh, it's not that interesting to me. So it wasn't that the technology wasn't interesting, it's just that the environment changed, the climate changed, everything about the world and that industry was different. So it no longer became my thing. So giving yourself permission to make the left, to make the right, and have no judgment, and realize you might have 20 chapters of different things you do in your life. You know, because I know this panel, Tony, if I had to kind of rank this group that with strategic ADD, I would maybe put you at the most afflicted. Um, <laughs> it is. It's a compliment. So when I hear the question, how do you bet through, I mean, just go for a four-mile walk with Tony, and you're like, which one are you going to do first? So I would love to hear you answer that question. This is all about what I want to no, know. No, I, I was trying to think of how you answer that question. So, no, you know, I think as entrepreneurs, we have true north. And there's a sense that with all of the choices, we've got to trust a bit as long as we stay true north to what we feel and think is going to be right. I also am a process bigot and know that I'm certainly not the smartest tack in the box. So I like process, I like weighted voting, and I like the Ben Franklin, if you guys have ever heard of that, because I think as entrepreneurs, when you do a Ben Franklin, he used to make decisions and choices by doing pluses and minuses. And what every entrepreneur does is they stack the deck to what they want to do. So you end up predetermining what goes in the plus column and the minus column. And it's called, I don't know, confirmation bias or it's called, right? But true north and you end up sort of rationalizing whether right, wrong, or indifferent, how things seem and feel. But I do like some structure to it because that keeps us out of never never land and wishful thinking and dreaming so i'll just i'll just add to that but i think we all do stack the deck to where we want we get the answer that we're looking for but you know just to give you a couple of examples when you talk about ideas so when i had my construction company so we did permanent modular construction so we did the first two three four story large-scale modular construction projects so at one point I thought, oh, this would be a really good idea if we provide not only the building, we want it to be a turnkey solution company. So we decided to go into the modular furniture business as well. Makes sense, right? Not so much. You know, but so I, I did that for about a year and I had a full separate division. I had salespeople for furniture and I realized that there were people and companies out there that did that much better than I did. And so, you know when to get in, you want to try that idea, but you also have to know when to get out. The second example I'll share, 
going further down the supply chain. So I would buy all of my product from different manufacturers around the U.S., depending on where that project was located. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to take on a little bit more of the risk. I'm going to own a manufacturing facility. So what did I do? I went out and I bought two of them. Well, I realized being able to manage a project when it's on site and actually knowing how to manage the project when it's going through that manufacturing facility was a lot different. And so within three years, at the time that I bought it, I sold it, unfortunately, at the top of the market before we lost our shirt. I share those examples to say that I wouldn't have known if I was going to be successful or not had I not tried it. It could have had a completely different outcome, but I wouldn't have known that unless I tried it. And you also have to know that if it's not going to work, get out as soon as you can. Ladies, I am so excited. Thank you so much for sharing your stories because each one of you brings something unique, you know, when it comes to the different industry and verticals. So I have a couple of questions. One is, how did you balance your life? Because as women, not only are we have to live to the standards of being an entrepreneur and leader, but also we have family, we have you know kids, and you are running to errands and schools. You know, I've done all that myself. But at the same time, you're very driven. You know, go all the way or go home. Right? That's our motto as entrepreneurs. And I think that's everybody here too. That's why we're all sitting here. <laughs> and then the other question is, on your company. What was your first initial capital investment into your company? Because I think that's important too, because either you put all your savings in, continue to fund it, or you got, you know, funded, which takes a lot of work. And as women, you know, it's always been that we don't get funded as fast as men, right? So that's my question. I'll, I'll pick up the first one. One of the things that I found great about being an entrepreneur and so when I started my company my son was five was that I had more control over my time so if I wanted to go at lunch and make pizza at the Montessori school I could do that I'd probably end up working till midnight but that's okay because I could choose that right I had that flexibility with my time and so my son's about to graduate from college and he's doing this whole entrepreneurial fraternity so I would like to think that I was okay as a mother. I know through that process, there were many times when I felt like, you know, I should be a better mother, I should be spending more time, I should be that person who's showing up and volunteering in the classroom, although I really hate doing that. <laughs> you know, I'm, not, I'm not interested really in, in, honestly, that's terrible to say, right? But there are other people who are, so what I realized what I can do is I can, I can write a check, somebody else can do it, I can always be there for my son when he gets home. You know, we would take off whenever a new Star Wars movie came out. I'd pick him up from school, and we'd be the first ones at the Studio Movie Grill when they started at eleven, you know, eleven o'clock in the morning. So I guess what I want to say is, you can you pick the things that matter, the things that matter to you. But you always feel stretched. You always feel like I should be doing more for the business. I mean, I I worked throughout my son's childhood. I traveled. I was gone. You know, so you just have to find your way on that. On funding, the first money I raised was 250,000 euros for our business to get it kickstarted. 
which is for a medical device company. Actually, I was used to raising big money. Let me just preface that. I've been raising, you know, 20 million, 30 million, 10 million, 15 million. So when I started my company, it's 2002, December, right? So what happens in, in that time frame? Like September 11th has happened, the market has crashed. 2002, I find out later, or sorry, 2003, somebody from Price Waterhouse, remember, they used to do this money tree and they talk about the state of venture capital in the United States. And they described 2003 as the nuclear winter of funding for startup companies. It had dropped by a precipitous 97%, right? So and I'm watching Cindy Keith, who used to be the, the, the partner of PwC, who would do this whole presentation. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. And if you told me in the beginning that I would have to start, build, and sell my company in the window that I had on less than $5 million. If you told me that in the beginning, I would say there is absolutely no way. It cannot be done. But that's what we did. Because that's all we could get at the time. And we just you know, figured out different ways. I mean, the, the old model of, hey, here's a big pile of money. Go spend it as fast as you can and see how far you can get. That had ended. Of course, it's now returned. But uh, yeah, so I think it really depends too on you know, what's the capital requirement of your company, how far can you get with that first tranche, because what you want to do is you want to get enough to be able to hit a milestone that's going to be meaningful to get, you know, prove out whatever you're going to need to prove out to get to that next fundraising in your business if you need, or whether it's debt or equity financing. Marsha, do you want to take uh, Sure. Okay. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Okay. So how many of you in the audience have five kids? Yeah, okay, so we have a blended family. It's a yours, mine, and ours situation, and they currently vary in age between 24 and 35. And so I would say it is clearly the case, like when I made partner at my original HR consulting firm when I was based in New York and I had my first child, I would come home at six o'clock do something with the kid, put him to bed, literally walk back down Third Avenue, back uh, over to park, and go back to work for three hours every day for at least a year before I made partner. We did an acquisition 10 days after I had a C-section. I had to go and do a presentation to about 100 consultants from around the world about how we were going to market and sell this thing. The kids never knew me any differently, is basically what I'm trying to say. So I got a few complaints you know, over the years about, you know, why aren't you there? And so-and-so's mom is there. And you know, I think like Lee, I did the things that I was passionate about. And so my son, my oldest son was the captain of the swim team at Jesuit for two years, and I was a swim team mom. And so that gave me an in where I wasn't always the weird mom who was working all the time. I had, some, I had a job to do, and I pursued it like a job. And so, and so and I think that that helped me, where I just kind of jumped in the things that were, I could feel where I could add value, and in other areas like Lee, I'd simply write checks. And now, it's interesting because they come to us with their business problems, you know, or, 
you know, they, they talk to us in a different way than probably if I'd been a different kind of mom. And I'm okay with that because I actually feel as if I'm still relevant to them, you know, at this stage in their lives. And on the funding issue, it's different in consulting because I'm not buying factories. I'm not making widgets. We are the assets. And so the investments that we have to make are in people. And so I think the, the first year before we really sort of totally officially branded ourselves, I put $60,000 into the business. And that's the only money I've ever put into the business. And so from there on, it's just a matter of, you know, you build the business, you add people as you have more work, and it's the constant churn of knowing when to add people so you can take on more work. So you're investing in people, so you're paying someone, yeah, that's an investment, and it's coming out of what would be in my pocket otherwise, but you have to do it in order to grow the business. One of the things that I did with, with my kids early and then throughout my company is we had a rule that I could not be on the phone when they got in the car from school. And I broke the rule just once, and I was on the phone with the client, I had boys, and they decided to greet my clients with bodily function noises. <laughs> that was it. I was never on the phone again when they got in the car. And, and they said it was strategic. And I believe that. Yeah. So, one thing I wanted to bring up is my kids are 35 and 37 now. And, you know, my son has a family and it's great. And... You know, while they were growing up, I always tried my best, like probably every person, every woman up here, because that's just what we do. You know, we're, we're women, we're mothers, we we want to give them everything, right? And it's very hard to balance. And here's what I learned. Both of my children have really strong work ethics. We were talking about this on the break. And they don't get that by what you tell them. They get that by what they see. And so always know that, like, even if it's not perfect, and even if you have to go back to the office time after time, and they're griping, which I used to tell my kids, well, you just need something to therapize over, so it's going to be okay. But they're, they're good. You know, they're, they're very hard workers. They're, you know, they get up every day, like we talked about at the break, and they're given 110%, and, you know, I know there's some people in here that do that as well, so keep doing that. But everyone does learn through the ethers and the observation more than the words. You can't tell them. Really. Can I stay on that subject? I tell, so my whole sales force, I've got 500 of them, and 60% of them are women. And of the top 25 this year, 21 are women. So I don't know what's going on. They're killing it. But one of the things that I do is I'll pull everybody together, men and women, and, I'm, and, and these are young millennial generation who's starting their families and all of that. And I wish they could all be here tonight to listen to you. I wish we could put this on film. But the reality is, is that I tell them all the time. I'm like, look, you really can have it all. God created us to live a life of great abundance. So an abundance of joy, an abundance of relationships and abundance of laughter, abundance of fun and, and abundance of challenge and certainly an abundance of wealth and success and, and everything else. But the fact is, is that you really can have it all. And most people, you know, get a false narrative. They say, well, if you're going to have a great career, 
then you're going to wreck your family. Or if you have a you know, great family, then you could never have a great career. And I'm like, that's complete fault, right? You can have everything. And, you know, my, my son is just crushing it over there. Right? And, you know, growing up, I started a company, scaled a company, then took a company public all while coaching baseball teams and, you know, wrestling teams and being the head of the, you know, Indian guys and Indian princess and every other thing. And so I'm interested to hear your perspective on that. Can you really have it all, or is that some kind of a myth? And then second, I tell them, you can have it all, you just got to prioritize. You know? Like right now, you all are the most important people in my life, because this is where I am. Right? That doesn't mean that God, family, and, you know, those things are not my top priorities. They are. But today, at this very moment in time, we have to prioritize. And so... As you go through that crazy acquisition or the situation where you think, okay, my company is going to fail because I'm in a jam right now. If this jam doesn't get unjammed, this whole thing's going down. So how do you prioritize? And am I accurate in the things that I'm telling these young kids? I just want to, I want to quote Nora Ephron, who I love. She said, you can have it all. You just can't have it all at once. And I think that's, to your point, I don't think about priorities as, you know, hard one, two, three, four, five. I think of them as sort of these sliding boxes. Okay, this is priority one right now, but you know what? My son needs this, so that's gonna move up. Oh, now he's okay. I can prioritize other things. I don't know that I will ever feel like I got it right or that I got it figured out. Maybe it's just my personality. I'm constantly questioning myself. Oh, could I have done this better? Could I have done that better? You know, I try not to spend too much time in that place because it never makes me feel good. And I also try not to judge my inside by somebody else's outside. And if there was one thing I could leave you with, it's that. Because it's easy to look at other entrepreneurs and say, oh man, look at that. He's got everything, he's doing this great, he's doing that great. And all you're seeing is the outside. You don't know what's going on inside. You know, you don't know what the struggles that people face, and we all face a lot of struggles. So, you know, when it comes to balancing things, I think one of the best things you can do is talk to other people about it. Yeah, I think you will find those answers. Yeah, and I would add, really it's about being present in wherever you are, and I think you alluded to that, Jeff, is Yes, you can have a lot of freedom as an entrepreneur. You were talking about you can take off at 11 in the morning and go watch a Star Wars movie, right? And I've heard people say, well, I want to start my own company so I can have a lot of freedom. And <laughs> right, well, yeah. So yes, you can be flexible in your schedule, but then you also cannot complain when you're working on financial statements and trend lines at three in the morning because that's where you are at that moment and that's what needs to be done. Right. So being able to have that flexibility and say, you know what, I need to do this thing, whether it's for my family or me personally or whatever, but then realize all those other things, you need to be present for them too. And they might not come at a conventional time of day because we work 24 seven and it's people talk about life balance and I laugh and I'm like, it's not about balance. It's about life integration. It's all one life. You're not saying there's this life and there's that life and I want to balance them. It's like, how are you going to be present through the whole thing and make it all fit? And sometimes that means using all 24 hours in a day and you have to have the stamina to be willing to do that. 
by the way, lots of therapy here, right here, <laughs> lots of therapy. So I was the mom that ran out of the hospital and then had the first ex-husband come with the child to breastfeed while I was working outside in the parking lot. So I was that mom. But a good therapist said compartmentalization. And I think that that strategy helps. And one of the things that she said, and I think this is not women or men, this is just sort of what we do. We need to learn how to lock the door and then unlock the door of our work life because entrepreneurs can tend to be consumed by this, you know, dopamine, serotonin, and endorphin. That is what happens to our brains when we get all excited about our business. And there's lots of things in between that that don't create those highs. And so, you know, it's doing the things that you said that you did by compartmentalizing. And, and I do remember being, you know, the den mother and the shirts were so ugly. Like I hated the shirts, but we just do what we do. And I was changing it on LBJ. Like I'd have to change out of my work clothes into the den mom suit right, so that you could go there. And I, oh, those of you in Boy Scouts, I've already told Circle 10, I wrote a letter to them that the shirts are literally ugly for gen mothers. Anyway, but, but compartmentalization, I think, helps. And I, I just want to share this, because I think it's so cool, because I just learned it in a book that I read this weekend. They said, the most interesting element that we have in our life is time. Duh, and we all know that that's the most important asset, and God gave us 24 hours in every day, and that's the only thing that he created equal for all of us, so it's what we do. But this book talked about time. It was about being on social media and being online, kind of getting consumed by this, and being able to manage time. So what they said is, I love this. If we go on to social media, wherever we gather it, Time, one, time bound. So it has to be time bound. So you know how much time. I is intentional. So whatever you look at, read, do, think about is intentional. M is mindfulness, which is be intentional and be mindful of what you're intaking or doing in the present moment. And then E is enlightened. So at the end of whatever we've done for that period of time, did we actually get something out of it? Isn't that beautiful? I've, I've, I've never had original thought in my life, but I loved that one. <laughs> I learned probably the most valuable lesson of my life at a very young age, that when I was in my late 20s, I had a goal. My goal was to make a million dollars by 30 years of age. And I killed myself. I was so intense. I was probably not the most fun person to be around. But 24-7, I was thinking about my business, and I was thinking about my goals, and I was thinking about what more could I do. Well, at 27, I had a stroke. And it came as quite a surprise because all of a sudden, I couldn't talk. And I had to go to the emergency room, and they said, well, you know, why are you here? And I thought, Okay, I can't tell you why I'm here because I can't talk. I could think. I, I was perfectly fine inside, but I couldn't express myself. And so I ended up recovering, obviously. And I, I said, you know, 
All right, so if I make all the money in the world and I can never talk again, is that a good trade-off? And I decided, no, it's not. So now I, I cut back, and I didn't make my first million until I was 31, so I thought I was the biggest loser. But I, so I, you know, people think, I had my president of my company say to me the other day, he said, you're the hardest working woman I know. And I respect him and his opinions, and I thought, no, I'm not, no, I'm not because I don't work near as hard as I could. So I think I've modified it, but I modify it for me. And I think you have to look at yourself and take care of yourself because all this is for naught if you don't have your health. Can I ask one ending question? Yep. So it's a really quick answer. Besides Lee's book, Finding the Exit, um, business book recommendation down the line. It's hard to pick one. Marcia, you want to go first? You're going to like this one. No. <laughs> Referral of a lifetime. It's about cultivating and working 100% through referrals and let that do the work for you, making your life a lot easier because of that. This is, a, this is a, a book that I published, and it's one of my very favorite business books ever, and it's called Broken Handoff, Saving Your Assets. And it is about M&A. So if you're thinking about selling your business or buying a business, uh, there's lots of advice in this book. And quite frankly, I think I ticked off a lot of people because I have said that I've been in a lot of seminars with people that are trying to convince me to sell my business and how rosy it is. And I'm going to get rich and live on the, the French Riviera and I'll never have to want for anything again. And this book really kind of tells you the truth. So broken handoff, saving your assets. Lynn? So I'm going to switch. It's not a business book. This is an author. Her name is Brene Brown. She is a researcher and a writer. She does amazing work. And again, you would never consider it a business writing, either any of her books, but try it out. And she talks about some of the things that we don't normally talk about, like shame. And, you know, she just basically talks about courage and bravery and, you know, being in the arena and just all the things that it takes to be successful in business. I, I second the Brene Brown recommendation. And I just want to add a footnote. I think Millie does actually have a catalog that she can give you at the end <laughs> with all of the business books you should be reading. She knows them all, whether they're hers or not. I, I, I'm going to confess that I hate business books. I hate business books. I read memoir. I love biography. So I love, I'd rather read somebody's story. I'm more of a story person than a prescriptive how-to person. So I love Shoe Dog. I don't know if you've read that. I love Snowball, Warren Buffett. I'm from Nebraska. You know, got to have the Warren Buffett piece in there. Obviously, Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs is fantastic. So, because what I really want to understand is, you know, how do successful people think? What do they do? Where have they fallen? How do they get back up? So, sorry, Colleen. So, my most recent one, it ebbs and flows through the years, but my most recent one is The Spiritual Entrepreneur by Pauline Wynn. And she is the owner of the Red Lantern, which is the number one Vietnamese restaurant in all of Asia Pacific. 
but the book is about basically being a spiritually grounded present person and being an entrepreneur and finding a way to let those two psychologies coexist and being present. I think it's impossible to ask an entrepreneur for one. Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, the one that is the true test of time. Peter Senge's The Fifth Discipline, most important book. And recently, in the last five years, I think the most important book of our time is Cal Newport's Deep Work. Unbelievable about how we spend our time and our life. I would say um, there's a book that I just started reading called Never Split the Difference. It's a book about the art of negotiating, and it's by Chris Voss, and it's very, very good. I guess second or third, Renee Brown. And, and I would actually like to disagree with Lee that she may not like business books, but she wrote one, <laughs> um, which is also very, very good. But it is done in the form of, of a story, and it's a great story, and it's a personal story about not only her life, but how she successfully built and sold her business. So it's kind of like this great, you know, business storytelling all in one. So it's a great read. I think uh, I think we did a good thing tonight. You know, not that it's a like I said, not the women's panel. It's like really badass entrepreneurs. So anyway, this has been fantastic. Hopefully, we can talk to Colleen and thank you, Colleen. Like you've been an incredible moderator. We're so grateful for you. And we hope that we can make this into uh, something that we do, maybe even uh, on an annual basis. So I want to thank everybody that's here, the class and the gallery and incredible panel. Doug Grinfro, beautiful job tonight. Thank you very much for joining uh, This is the Biz Owner's Ed podcast. Connect with us at bizownersed.com. Rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss out on every value-packed episode.